chapter 25. As you turn to that, I want you to think about the world in which Christianity came, because I think we're living in bookends. What I mean by that is Christianity came out of the paganism that we see that we're going back into today. You think about, uh, we talked about uh, uh, Drusilla last week, and how that she was the uh, sister of two people that we'll meet in chapter 25, although that'll be next week when we really concentrate on Agrippa and Bernice. You realize all three of those, they were brothers, uh, they were a brother and two sisters. And Drusilla was married to a crook. And, uh, and uh, Agrippa and Bernice were married to one another. I mean, bad stuff. Did you see on the internet? Now, it might have been a couple of months ago. I don't know what happened to it. But there was a big controversy on Netflix because they had a series where a boy and a girl, brother, sister, fell in love with one another in a whole series about that. You're getting into, we're getting into some bad stuff. Now think about that as we think about some of the things that are happening. There's a lady named Diane uh, Aronsaf. She's a self-identified feminist who supports gender revolution. She's the director of the mental health and chief psychologist at the University of San Francisco, or University of California in San Francisco Children's Hospital. Uh, she de- it's the Gender Development Center. And as a result of that, uh, she believes in gender affirmation, care for the, gen- uh, the transgender, and gender expansive patients. And I won't uh, bore you with all the details, but she goes on and says, children are marvelously inventive, and we should listen to them because many of them now are, uh, and they're kids that think of themselves as mermaids. That's one of the favorite things. Boy, that's, where, where does that come from? Good old Disney. And then uh, she's talking about all these different things, but uh, she comes up with things that kids think about today. There's transgender children. There's gender expansive children. There are gender fluid children. That's why they can be anything they want to be. There are children, there are gender, there are gender non-binary children. That means that they, they're neither. Binary is two, which means that either you're a boy or a girl. And so if you're non-binary, and so I'm tr- catching up on some of this terminology used, that you use today. So if you hear somebody saying they're uh, non-binary, that means they're neither. They don't know what they are. They're thoroughly messed up. But this really, now she's gotten into gender hybrids. Kids can think of all kinds of things. Gender Prius, that's half boy, half girl. A kid cannot think of that. Or Cinder, uh, this is the one that she's really going to, uh, Gender Minotaur. Now, a Minotaur is, remember those half animals, half uh, uh, humans back in Greek mythology? And uh, you remember, the, uh, remember what was it, uh, Hercules or whatever? He had the, you know, the body of a horse and the, then the torso of a man and so forth. Uh, that's the minotaur. Well, kids are thinking about being minotaurs today. Isn't that great? Uh, gender by season, which means that they could be a, a school a school year girl and a summer boy. Isn't that great? Also, they could gender by location. At home, they could be a boy. And at grandma's, they could be a girl. Isn't that great stuff that we could teach our children today? 
Now you say, well, that's out in San Francisco and we know that that's pretty bad off. Well, I got a call from one of my children, uh, one of my grown children, um, this past week. And I won't name which one. We're on the Internet. I don't want to have them zero it in or whatever else. But uh, they had a big referendum in the school district in which they, uh, that uh, they're part of uh, in the state that they're in. And the reason they were having it was because somebody raised a big ruckus because they were wanting to install litter boxes into the public schools for the kids who identified as cats. I mean, folks, this is weird. And I was thinking, well, what if, I, what if the kids went there and thought they were dogs? Are, are, they, gonna, are they going to install fire hydrants? You know, what, what are they going to do? This is weird stuff. And we're talking about, uh, and folks, we're going right back into where uh, Paul was preaching to these people, to Bernice and to, uh, to, and to Festus and all the rest. This was, a, this was the Temple of Diana stuff. This was the stuff in Ephesus where people from all over the world would come and have these great orgies and they would dress up like animals and act like animals and all these different things. And you could rest assured that many of the participants in chapter 24 and chapter 5 had been there. And so you can imagine what it would be like to have a judge that you're standing before that had that kind of philosophy. Can you imagine going before a judge that is gender fluid today? That's where we are. And so we've seen Christianity pull out of that, and Christianity changed the world. It pulled us out of that Greek mythology. But now that we are abandoning Christianity, guess what we're doing? We're going right back into mythology. We had the truth, but we've lost it. And we're going right back into the, into the world from which Christianity came. It's amazing how that we're living at the bookends of history. Where Christianity and chapter and the book of Acts, we see Christianity pulling, uh, pulling the world out of sin. Now we see that the world is pulling the church back into sin. You realize we got people churches right here in town, and I was talking to uh, again. We got churches right today. Now, if the church they're already accepting the perversions of homosexuality, they will go this route also. Because you just, sin never stands still. It always goes down. And so if the world is preaching this, it won't be long before the churches who want to identify with the world are going to be accepting the same things that uh, we just talked about. That's the way it always is, isn't it? So think about that. As now you begin reading in chapter 25 of Paul and the dilemma he's in. Remember, he's, come, he's been now in prison for two years Locked up by, now he was uh, nearly torn apart by people who rejected his preaching, the, his own people, the Jew. He was rescued by the Romans, but then he went and he, he's had three trials. Like Jesus, he'll have three trials. And so we saw with Felix, he had his first trial before a corrupt man. And, uh, and his wife, Drusilla, who was a very... She was the Jezebel of the New Testament. But uh, we see that uh, uh, he preached them. But to, to do the Jews a favor, he left them in prison. So Felix was a, a procrastinator. Now we have Festus who takes his place. And now these are the same office as Pontius Pilate. They were proconsuls. And uh, they had the power over life and death. Of the, and so this is, a, 
These are uh, the same office uh, as Pilate uh, 30, 40 years later. And so we see now that uh, in, in chapter 25, verse 1, and when Festus had come to the province, and after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, Let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he called Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. But he answered for himself, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, now where did he hear that? That's one of the common things of these, whether it's Pilate or Festus or Felix, they always wanted to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I will do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Now, Father, as we live in a very sinful age, in a very sinful world, among very sinful people, Lord, we realize just how easy it is in our own lives and our thinking to be tainted and to be guided by the things of this world. So, Father, we pray for your cleansing. We pray, Lord, for your direction in life, that that spiritual radar, the Holy Spirit working within us, would caution us as to sin, would convict us where we go wrong. And, Father, empower us to live and to stand against Satan in all the work that he would do. Father, we pray as a church that you would give us power the power of preaching, realizing that, Lord, preaching against sin is going to bring the wrath of the world. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us understanding, but most of all, Lord, that you would give us a real love for those that many times would oppose us because they're not opposing us. They're opposing the truth that lies within us. And so, Father, we pray for your understanding, for your your power, Give us understanding, Lord, on how to reach our loved ones, our neighbors, people who outwardly can be good people, and yet they're lost in sin. 
Father, save souls. Thank you for how that you've blessed this church in so many different ways. Thank you for calling us together. Thank you for meeting our physical needs and even the, the needs of, the, of us being able to worship together in one building. But, oh, Father, now we pray that you would build your temple, your church, the presence of your people. Oh, Father, add to your church daily such as should be saved. People that came out of, come out of the world much like they did in the world in which Paul lived. Oh, Father, if you could do it back then and turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan and sin to the wonderful Savior, we pray at the end of the age that you can do the same. Where sin abounds, grace much more does abound. Father, may we experience that truth. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we said, Festus is now the proconsul or the governor. Uh, these were political appointments uh, from Caesar. We don't know a whole lot about Felix, like, or, or, or excuse me, Festus, like we did uh, Felix. He was a political appointee, and he came now to Jerusalem around A.D. 60, 60-61. So this would be um, what, 27, 28 years since the Lord Jesus had gone, to, um, gone back to heaven. And uh, Paul has now been in the ministry for about uh, almost 20 years. And, uh, of course, he's seen many things. We've seen, we've got a, a list of how that he's been beaten and so forth. But now he's been in prison for two years because the proconsul before him, uh, Felix, had done the Jews a favor and had left him in prison. Now, we see, each, we see these proconsuls, they're very good men. In fact, uh, uh, we know that, well, when I say good men, they were very powerful men. We know that uh, Pilate said that I see nothing wrong with the Lord Jesus, but... Willing to do the Jews a favor, he washed his hands of the situation and let the powers, or the, the, the thing to go downhill from that. And of course, we look at Pilate as with that philosophy, and of course, we condemn him to hell because of what he did. Well, these other councils did the same thing, even with Paul. We see that Felix, willing to do the Jews a favor, left him in prison when they should have let him out because he was not guilty of anything. Remember, we've looked at the trial, and, uh, and, uh, and Felix realized, hey, these guys don't have anything that really that would condemn him to death or even to prison. But yet, because he didn't want to upset the political atmosphere, because he, did, he wanted to stay on the good side of Caesar, and of course, these Jews were volatile people, especially at this time, and just a few, you know, 10 years from now, they're going to totally revolt, less than 10 years, about six or seven years from now, they're going to totally revolt and, and, and murder a lot of the soldiers and kick them out, and of course, that's when uh, the, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in AD 70. So this is a uh, this is a hotbed. This is a place where one after another of these proconsuls or governors are trying to quiet things down politically and try to keep the Jews happy and keep the uh, Caesars off their back. Now we're living in the time now of Nero, and so Nero is the is the uh, is the Caesar, and we see now that Festus though is a lot different than Felix. Festus, or Felix, was known as the procrastinator. And he left a mess for Festus to come in and take care of. Now, Festus, as opposed to uh, Felix, was a real go-getter. He hadn't been, now it's most uh, 
the sailing trips were, were very, very difficult. And uh, he needed more rest than three days, but he was willing now to go from Caesarea. That's where his courtroom was. That's where his power was. That's a seaport city. But he was wanting to go back up to the very center of the activity in Jerusalem and try to get on the good side of the Jews. And so that we see now that he goes up there and he wants to get to meet them and get to know them. And he knows all about uh, uh, the reputation of this place. And uh, he's sent to a very challenging, he was wanting to prove himself as to how that he could be better than Pilate, better than uh, Felix, and that he could be the one to really uh, uh, sell these people down. And so we see that he goes from, from the, prov- the province. And of course, Jerusalem was uh, part of that providence, province. And after three days after being in Caesarea, he, then he went to the high priest. Now, the high priest has changed. It was no longer Ananias, but uh, someone else had been appointed. Uh, of course, not, uh, not the Aaronic priesthood, but now this is another political uh, meeting. And, but he was a Jew, but that was basically it. And uh, he was a priest. And the chief men, so this would be the Sanhedrin, and uh, as soon as they got, as soon as he's came, he came, and of course you can imagine a high government official coming in. They knew he was coming, and they were ready. And the hatred that these religionists had for one man. Isn't it amazing what religion does? Isn't it interesting when people turn away from God? And someone has said that uh, uh, how many thousands of people, or millions of people, have been killed in the name of Christianity. Well, they take the name of Christianity and they apply it to what they want to do and they desecrate, of course, the name of Christianity and they murder a lot of people. How many politicians today talk about the Lord, uh, talk about uh, what Jesus would do? I mean, it really galls me when these people that are abortionists and all kinds of other uh, perverts and everything else, but this is what Jesus would do and Jesus is love. And you're just going, ah, you know, do they, they don't even know the Jesus that I know. Well, here we have these religionists. They have the robes of the priesthood. They have, the, they have all the practices and all the class and so forth of religious people, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and all the different uh, groups that uh, they knew how to act. But their hearts were horribly wicked to the point of they hated this man. After two years, they still wanted to kill him. Can you imagine? Uh, folks today... We're saying, again, if you don't like me, I'll kill you. I mean, isn't that the attitude that we have today, especially toward Christianity? You realize uh, that, uh, you know, if you, if you belong to a certain philosophy, you can go out and burn town, cities down. You can uh, desecrate churches. You can disrupt meetings. But uh, if you're a Christian and you, uh, and you uh, sit across the street from an abortion clinic and pray, you can be locked up. Uh, if you uh, if you speak out a, a, at a school board meeting, you can be put on the FBI watch list. This whole world's not a friend of grace, and in fact, it's becoming an enemy of grace today. And we're seeing that we're going to start paying a price, and for the hatred that the world has for the Lord Jesus Christ. The servant is not better than his master. If they persecuted me, they will what? Persecute you. And so we see that we will be paying a price. In fact, George Barna did a survey recently, and he found out that one of the major concerns of many Christians in America, or the most of the Christians in America, is the fear of persecution. 
we're, there's a fear within churches today that you know we're going you know we're going to see persecution soon, and so we, it's going to cost us to serve the Lord. So we're living at the end of the age of grace, where Paul was. We see just beginning it. So that we're living at bookends. We're going right back into the things that Paul was trying to pull the world out of. And so we see. But aren't you glad, folks? I've read the last chapter. I know that you know that. Uh, I know where I'm going, and I know what God's going to do. And we're just finishing out the book of Revelation. We're reading the last two chapters, and folks, it gets fun, doesn't it? It might get bad, but, uh, but uh, payday's coming. And there's going to be a great reward for those who will serve the Lord. It's, but here we see that Paul, now the Lord had already told Paul, now that you notice here that uh, Festus was a, a man of great action, but now as he's there, he realizes that this is, you don't, um, for one thing, he's a Roman and Paul has declared his Roman citizenship. As a Roman citizen, uh, Festus could not change the venue. In other words, he could not change the city. You hear about, uh, let's take this, uh, this uh, court case out of this city because it's you know, tainted and put it in another that's venue. And he realized that he could not change the venue and bring Paul back to Jerusalem as a Roman citizen unless Paul gave him permission. So he didn't have that permission. And uh, being the good Roman uh, judge that he was, he said, uh, he, he took command of the situation. He said, no, you come down to my venue. You come down to here if you've got questions and we'll have court down there. Now, he could have come up there. You remember Pilate. Pilate had a very impromptu court session, and remember he brought out the pavement. That was actually a, that was a mobile court. In other words, they had a few stones, then a little desk, and whenever the proconsul like this would come out, the book of Luke tells us about the pavement. Well, basically, it was a few stones that he put out in front of there, and then he would put his uh, his seal or whatever on a desk, and that was they would hold the court session. That's what they did with the Lord Jesus. So he could have had a mobile court right there, but he, of course, he wasn't going to do because he was bound by Roman law and Paul was a Roman citizen. So he took charge of the situation. He said, no, you come down to my venue and we'll have the court session down there. This is the second of three trials, just like the Lord had three trials. We see that this is the second of them that he has. And we see that he says, let those who have any authority among you Go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. But then also, now that's a very strong statement. He starts out pretty good. But like so many people, he was a pragmatist. Pragmatist is, you know, whatever the situation dictates, then that's the way I'll go. And so we see that in verse 6. And when he had remained among them about 10 days, so he stayed there about a week and a half. He took care of some other business. He went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting in the judgment seat, there's that judgment seat, and it could have been mobile if he put payment out there, but this was basically his courtroom, and he, in the judgment seat, and he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he came, when he had come, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem and stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, 
which they could not prove. Why could they not prove them? For one thing, they had lied earlier and said they had arrested Paul. They hadn't arrested him. It was the Roman soldiers, remember, that rescued Paul from the mob of Asian Jews who had come down who knew Paul and had accused him of all kinds of things. Well, they're back home now. They're back in Asia. They have no witnesses. They have nothing that they really knew about Paul other than the fact that he came to the temple and practiced like they did. In fact, he took a Nazarite vow and he didn't break a, a law at all. And they had no witnesses. They just, th- they just threw a lot of stuff at him, hoping that something would stick. Does that sound familiar today? <laughs> just throwing all kinds of things at Paul, hoping that maybe they could have something that would you know, sound legal. But uh, Paul saw right, saw, saw right through it. And remember, Paul is a lawyer. If you don't believe it, read the book of Romans. It's very lawyerese. But we notice that um, they laid many serious complaints against Paul, in which they could not prove. And when he answered for himself, he said, neither against the law of the Jews. Name one law that I've broken. Now, you have all kinds of things you don't like about me, but name a law that I've broken. And of course, they had none, and they had no witnesses as to what he had broken. Nor against the temple. You did accuse me of taking a Gentile in, but if that, but you know that wasn't true. If, you'd, if you had taken him in, he would, you would have killed him. And that was the one thing that could, the Romans allowed them to do. Inside that temple, if a Gentile or if things happened, whatever was inside that temple could be judged by the Jews. And so it's interesting how that uh, Paul, if he had taken his friend in with him, who was a Gentile, then uh, they could have killed him. But that didn't happen. There was no death. And so we see that, uh, uh, that, so he hadn't committed anything against the Jews, nor against the temple. And the one thing I have not done is rebel against Caesar. I have not been an insurrectionist. I have not, and of course, no one can accuse me of that. And so I have offended and nothing, or I have not defended anything at all. He says, I'm squeaky clean, folks. You've thrown a lot at me, but there's nothing here. And of course, he would have done it in his legalese or whatever else. And Festus is no dummy. He knows, that he knows wild charges when he hears them. And so we see that uh, in verse 9, but Festus wanting to do the Jews a favor. Wanting to do the Jews a favor, he should have dismissed the case right there on the point. Just like a lot of judges today will let things go on. Uh, Maybe not to find the person guilty, just to bankrupt them with the legal fees. Whatever, we see all kinds of things like that happening in our court systems today. And so we see that wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Uh, Are you willing to go back to Jerusalem? In other words, he had to get permission for Paul to go back to Jerusalem, knowing that these people wanted to kill him. Boy, that'd be the best way to get rid of him. Just let him kill him. Now, the bad thing about this, and I've often thought about this, you know, they were going to ambush Paul uh, on the way back to Jerusalem. Now, remember, it took 500 soldiers to protect him to bring him down to Caesarea. They would have to go through a lot of soldiers to get to Paul. You mean, were they willing to allow some of the Roman soldiers to be killed in order for them to get to Paul? 
Because if an ambush is an ambush, you know, so what would they do? And so here again was a situation where, of course, they wouldn't need to ambush him on the way back because once they got him to Jerusalem, they could kill him in the first place. But, but this was a legal problem, and Paul was, in a, Paul was in a fix. Paul had to, he realized that he was dealing with a very uh, pragmatic judge, a judge that really was a, a judge that knew the law and for most part was a good man. But when it came to the pressure of doing right, he did wrong. He was willing to be more popular than to be right. Oh, folks, do we meet that all the time? I mean, as a pastor, it's all throughout my ministry, except here, very rarely here. But uh, I've had to face, okay, uh, people that want to do things in a way that you can't do them. And as a pastor, I know that if we do that, we're not going to please God. But they're very popular, a very powerful person. And they can have sway. And as a pastor, you know that either you're going to be gone or they're going to take a lot of people with them. And yet you have to stand for truth. That's very difficult. Especially when you've got a wife and kids at home. And you don't know where your next food's going to come from if you lose a lot of those people. Those are all difficult things to do. And each one of you face that. You realize that uh, if you stand for what's right, you might lose the love of a, of a family member. You might even lose your job. So we've got to be pragmatic. We've got to, you know, go along to get along. There are certain things that, you know, I try to go along to get along, except there are certain things, folks, that we have to say with the here I take my stand. And there are certain things that we just cannot compromise on. I will not compromise as a pastor, and yeah, I don't think you will either, so I could say this honestly, uh, with people coming in wanting to bring this worldly philosophy into the church today. I mean, and uh, there again, if there's people who don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, uh, but yet they think that, uh, you know, we need to be more inclusive and include uh, all the rest of these religions and say there's more than one way to heaven, folks, uh, uh, I, I know that you don't believe that, so I can say this, but uh, there might be a group of people who do. Well, I've got to be willing to lose them, and you will too. Yeah, but they can be very popular because that's the, that's the crowd today, folks. Do you realize, you realize how narrow-minded you are? You believe there's only one way to heaven? What about the Buddhists? What about, the, uh, what about the, these guys that are running for conservative? They're conservatives, and they are Hindu. Folks, that's dangerous. Now, there again, I'm not getting off into all that. The only thing I think about uh, that one man, uh, sounds pretty good, but boy, he's not against Israel, or he's against Israel, and so boy, right there, cuts him off for me. But other than that, you know, it, it frightens me to have uh, someone, this, this country was, well I'm, well, I'm getting into politics, I have to be careful. But a whole different philosophy, we, we accept things now that we never would have before. And if he runs for government or whatever, these people will be considered Christians because they're conservatives. Folks, simply because you're conservative doesn't make you a Christian. Do you understand where I'm coming from? And so we're seeing people accepting all kinds of things today that we can't accept in a church. Now, unfortunately, sometimes you have to vote against a person, so you have to vote for a person, so you understand what I'm saying there. So we live in a convoluted type place. But here you have a man that knew what was right. 
And like so many men of his day and so many people today, they didn't stand on integrity. They stood on popularity. Festus was a halfway decent governor. But he, but he compromised, just like Pilate did, on the things that were truly right. The court case should have been dismissed, but Paul's now in a dilemma. He realizes that he's dealing with a judge who would just soon see him dead. So he did the only thing he could do. He appealed to Caesar, which was every Roman's right, which means he was, he was appealing to the Supreme Court. And so as a Roman soldier, a Roman citizen, he could do that. And so we see that it's interesting how that Festus played right into the hands of God. Because we see that God had already told Paul back after, remember, that great riot in the temple and he was saved by the Roman soldiers and one of the lowest nights of his life where he felt like, man, I spent uh, years wanting, dreaming of preaching to these people and getting them saved and nearly, nearly get killed. And uh, he's down and the Lord comes to him. And the Lord tells him, and back in chapter 23, he says, you have preached to the Gentiles, but now you'll go to Rome also. Now, Paul, now here, can you imagine being in jail for two years, wondering, why am I doing here? And how long, just like uh, Joseph stayed in jail for two years after the butler and, uh, and the uh, uh, butler and the baker left. And so, you know, just staying there for, for years, wondering, okay, Lord, you tell me, how am I going to get there? So many times we feel like God's leading us. But there's that time where we're saying, what am I doing here? Or, Lord, what's going on? You ever been there? I know what I think you want me to do, but my, I feel like I'm doing absolutely nothing right now. That's where Paul was until this day came. And now he's going to get a free ride to Rome. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? I mean, he says, okay, Lord, you're going to send me to Rome, but how am I going to get there? I mean, I've been stuck in this jail of a change for 18 months, two years. And then the day comes. Now, I don't think, uh, even at this time, I don't think Paul realizes what he just said. I don't think he goes back and says, you know, oh, so Lord, that's how you're going to get me there. He didn't think about that until later on. But for two years, I imagine he was wondering about the will of God in his life. For one thing, Lord, why am I not preaching the gospel all over the world and all that? I'm stuck in this jail cell until this great climactic time in his life where he is forced to appeal to Caesar. And we see the rest of it. As we said, chapters 21 through 28 is over a fourth of the book of Acts and is dealing with Paul taking the gospel from or out of Jerusalem and taking it to Rome and to the Western world. And we see then that uh, uh, he appealed to Caesar. But uh, Festus said, okay, I mean, it sounds very authoritarian. He says, okay, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. But then we see the rest of the chapter, and then chapter 26 is the longest uh, uh, speech and episode in all of the Bible about uh, the gospel going out and the the gospel message preached so clearly and plainly. It's the great uh, climax, actually, of the book of Acts, the preaching of the gospel 
to these people who had been in those temples and so forth, some of the most wicked and most diabolical people in the world, especially when you get to Agrippa and to Bernice and to the whole group of people there that Paul preaches to, and he preaches against sin, and he preaches, he preaches, he preaches to those wicked people with all that sin in their lives, the gospel of grace. And he wants to see them saved. Folks, that's what we've got to remember is that these, the people around us, they hate us because they hate our Savior. But we want to respond to them just like Paul responded to these people. In fact, if you'll turn over to chapter 26, we'll just look at the last portion. Uh, we'll come back to uh, Agrippa and so forth later on. Paul preaches, he says, oh, I want to see people turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. And after all this, and notice in verse 24, after this is the third trial, where Festus is, where what happened was Festus was in a dilemma. He says, okay, oh my, praise the Lord, I'll get rid of this guy, I'll send him to Rome. But then all of a sudden he thinks, I don't have any charges against him. I'm going to look like a fool sending a guy appealing to Caesar, and I don't even have any charges that I've convicted him on. I'm in a dilemma. I've got a problem. I've just made a legal case sending a guy to the Supreme Court and I don't even have anything to charge him with. Can you imagine standing before, I mean, uh, you know, one of those Supreme Court justices looking down at you and saying, okay, what's the charges? Uh, Your Honor, I don't have any. Uh, that would be, so he, that's the reason he calls in these corrupt people. Uh, you, you have uh, Agrippa and Bernice and you'll see though they're connected all the time, just like Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, they're just they're, they're the, those diabolical families in the Bible. But old Festus, he has problems in verse 24. And he's hearing all this thing in uh, verse 24, chapter 26. He says, now, as he thus had made defense, Felix said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning has made you mad. He, I mean, this was totally, this was a new message he wasn't used to. But Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, talking about Agrippa, before whom I speak, freely knows these things. Yes, the, the, these people had been around Jerusalem. They knew the gospel. They had known it all since the time of Jesus. For I am convinced that None of these things escapes his attention since these things were not done in the corner. In other words, Agrippa knows about the Lord Jesus. He said, but notice as he's preaching, notice, go down to verse 30. And when he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor, Felix, and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when he had gone aside, he talked among themselves, saying, this man has done nothing wrong, uh, deserving of death. Now, Paul, as you look back at verse 29, says, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both uh, almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. I want all of you people in this courtroom to be saved. He had preached the gospel to them. Whosoever will may come. Boy, can you imagine 
being able to go to the halls of Congress and preach like that today? Can you imagine going to a bar room and preaching like that today? And so he said, I I know all of your gifts, but I want you to have what I have. And notice what he says, I want you to have everything except for these chains. (laughs) Paul, can you imagine here with all this royalty and all this, uh, you know, the the Roman uh, Roman governor would be in scarlet. These other, uh, the, the king would be in purple and all, and Bernice, would, you could imagine how dolled up she was and all this. Then you have all these dignitaries all around and Paul's in prison clothes with chains on and he's preaching the gospel. It's amazing what God does with the power of the word. Folks, it's not, it's not us. It's the, what God does through us that counts. And one of the greatest messages in all the Bible the greatest gospel presentation in all the Bible was from a guy in prison garb with chains on. And he preached to a lost and dying and most diabolical crowd that you can ever know. And they had the same choice that anybody else has. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son hath not life. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And these people who were wanting Paul to enter a plea needed, realized that they had no plea with the Lord Jesus Christ, that they were guilty and that they needed salvation. So they were the condemned. And Paul had turned the table. No wonder they all got up and started wanting to get out of there. And then they privately said, you know, we're in pro- we got a problem because if he hadn't appealed to Caesar... We would have had to let him go. So we don't know exactly what happened with Festus, but he only lived two or three more years. And he died in about AD 62, somewhere around there. But Festus, unless he got saved, is in hell today. Along with the rest of those people who got up all agitated and left the courtroom. Just amazing. A guy who's condemned and everybody's looking down on him calls everybody to want to flee from the courtroom and he's standing in the middle without nothing but God on his side. But folks, if God's for us, what? Who can be against us? And that's the, that's the same decision that everybody has to make today. Folks, uh, we're sinners. We're living in a world of sin that, that is loving sin. We're seeing people who are tolerating sin, saying, I don't want to upset the apple cart. And yet, when we come along and say, this is what the Bible says, and all of us are sinners, we have to explain what sin is. Because people are so far away, like like, uh, Festus, that uh, I imagine old uh, Bernice had to tell him a little bit about what sin was, because he never had heard it before. And yet, once he found out, Boy, it really got to him. The folks were all sinners needing a salvation. We need salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I want to see, the, I want to see as Paul says earlier, and we'll get into it next week, our goal is to turn people from darkness to light, the light of the gospel, and from the power of Satan until our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the goal of this church, isn't it? We want to be able to stand bravely. And as Paul says, having done all to stand. 
And when we stand for the truth, either the world will kill us or flee. It's interesting here, they fled. <laughs> you know, they got up and all, they all left. We got to get out of here. This guy's getting too strong for us. We got, have you noticed that whenever you get to start talking about Jesus around people? Boom, they're out of there. And this is where they were. But the gospel went forth. Felix is going to die in a couple of years. Paul's going to take the gospel to Rome and change the world. In fact, it's interesting if you read over in Philippians and there's other passages, but Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul's winding up his letter to the Philippians. He's sitting in a Roman cell or whatever. He's in the house arrest with a chain, a chain to a, to a Roman soldier. But he writes to the people of Philippi and he says, uh, all the saints of Rome greet you, especially of the house of Caesar. In other words, he's winning people right under Nero's nose. And Nero's one of the most notorious of all the Caesars. And yet Paul is winning and, and forming churches right under him. Well, I'd like to get into how that God does that so many times where you think that the gospel is defeated, but it's just Germany. You know, some of the most, uh, uh, where some of the most thriving churches are happening right now or in Muslim countries. Uh, in places that are under great persecutions in Africa from the Muslims coming down or the Hindus or whatever else. Uh, Samuel Day there, Sambu Day in India. They're starting Bible schools right in the middle of all that uh, uh, Hindu persecution. That's how God does. As we take the God, we think we're defeated. Yet those who stand for Christ will see, maybe not in this lifetime, but what God will do with those who will live for him. Oh, my friend, that's our goal, is to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the Lord. And I want people to have what I have except for these chains. I thank God that I don't have to say that yet, but that God will use each one of us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the power of this word, the power of the gospel that could bring strong men down and make our enemies flee. But at the same time, Lord, it could save the worst of sinners. It could save people that are in some of the most diabolical sins, such as Agrippa or Bernice. But Lord, we pray now that as you have saved us and as you have empowered us, Lord, and the gospel of grace is within our hearts, oh, Father, give us the Holy Spirit boldness to stand before the weakest or the strongest sinner and tell them about the love and the grace that flows within us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may the, the rivers of springs of living water flow through us and touch other people's lives and bring them to salvation. May, and may people, as we see in the book of Revelation, draw from the water of life freely because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the church, says, Come, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Bless your people, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen.